0: I had a really neat text this week. I want to tell you about it. My, uh, my youngest daughter texted me and she said, Dad, I've listened to all those podcasts that you wanted me to listen to. And I'm so excited. Can you send me some more to listen to? <laughs> so I did. And then the next day she texted me. She said, Dad, I stayed up till three in the morning listening to those podcasts. And i have going to listen to them again. And so that's just really, I'll tell you what. This dad was, uh, this dad was excited. Uh, was excited about uh, about that. Open in your Bibles to Micah, if you would. I actually don't believe that. I, I'm not, not. Let me let me start again. I'm really not sure. I should be the one preaching the book of Micah this morning. One of you called me this week you had been reading the message of Micah, and in your brokenness, you were weeping, weeping over the message of Micah. It was easy for me to hear over the phone. It was easy for me to hear over the phone that that was a holy moment and that God was speaking to me through their brokenness and God was obviously speaking uh, to them. And it's not that I don't, being honest, it's not that I don't already feel inadequate to preach, period, but to preach the minor prophets. It's, it's been even harder, um, you know, uh, for me. I felt very inadequate in preaching the minor prophets. And so I just tell you that this morning I feel doubly inadequate in preaching this because I'm going to preach it. Although, like I said, I, I wasn't sure that God wasn't trying to direct someone else to preach. Let's pray. Father, help me today to do well lord with with this message of Micah, Lord, and give us ears lord please don 't please don 't let us tune it out because it 's not something we want to hear or it 's something we feel like gets gets hammered too much. Lord, I, I pray that you would give us ears to hear what it is that Micah said on your behalf to the to the Israelites and what you would want to say to us this morning. so help us to have ears to hear. And Lord, again, just help me to do well in this preaching part, and I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The first book, I mean, first verse of the prophetic book of Micah tells us who the author is. It names him as Micah. But beyond that, we know very little. His parentage isn't given, though his name suggests that he had a godly heritage. His his name is a shortened version of Micaiah, and it means who is like the Lord, I put a map up behind me, and he traces his roots from the town of Morasheth. and Morasheth was, we find that in verse 1 and verse 14 of chapter 1, but Morasheth was located in the foothills of Judah, about approximately 25 miles southwest of Jerusalem, so on the map, that would be the red arrow to the left on the bottom. Uh, Amos, you'll remember, was from this general vicinity as well. The arrow on the right is where Amos was from, about 15 miles southeast of, of Jerusalem. The white arrow, my attempt to make a white arrow, is Jerusalem. Okay, so uh, that is where these two men hailed from. And sort of like Amos, Micah was an agricultural fella. He was he was raised in an agricultural setting in in Jerusalem. Excuse me, in Israel. And probably not given much to national politics and to, you know, being in leadership. But just like God called Amos, you remember him, he was just a poor dirt farmer. God called him to go to the northern kingdom of Israel. God is going to call Micah to stay in the south and to prophesy to the southern kingdom of Judah and to the people and princes of Jerusalem in particular. Micah places his prophecy between the years of 750 and 686 BC because he said he prophesied during the, during the kingships of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Obviously, you know, he did not prophesy, I don't believe, for 86 years. But he was, was prophesying during their reign, so some of that, in some of that time. Micah is a contemporary of Isaiah. Isaiah is a major prophet. He left major writings behind. In fact, he's probably one of the most prolific of all the major uh, prophets. And uh, they were contemporaries. I read Isaiah 58 just a few moments ago because I believe the message of Isaiah 58 is actually the message of Micah, which we'll see in just a few moments. The verbal similarity between Micah 4, 1 through 3, and Isaiah 2, 2 through 4, tells us that one of them quoted the other, that one of them is copying the other. Which one copied who? Interpreters are divided over that. Did Micah use uh, Isaiah's writings? Did Isaiah use Micah's writings? Or, you know, it could be that the two men lived in such proximity to one another and they were such contemporaries, and they were prophesying at the same place, and, and their message was so similar. It could be that, you know, they heard each other speak, and maybe that's the reason for the similarity between those, those two verses that I, I gave you. I think it's probably very certain, probably very certain that they, they knew each other, that they were acquainted with one another. And as I said, some of their message has, has overlapped. Their message, or his message, I should say, Micah's message, because that's who we're talking about. Micah's message is directed towards the southern kingdom of Judah. However, in in the first oracle, as we'll see in just a moment, he he talks about, about the northern kingdom as well. Now, Micah's message is like that of all the prophets. If you've been with us and if you stay with us through this series of the 12 minor prophets, their, their message is really all the same. It is primarily calling out sin, sin in national Israel. And as a consequence of calling out the sin, they are saying, you are, I, we are warning you of impending judgment from God. In other words, Micah's message is, this is your sin, and here's the warning, God is going to judge you for this. And so, implied in that, directly if not overtly at times, the prophets are always calling the Israelites to repentance. They're always calling them to change. Here's the sin, here's the judgment that's coming, now repent. Turn back from this before it's too late. You remember, that was the message, that wasn't Jonah's message, but that was the outcome of Jonah preaching to the Assyrians, not even the Israelites. They repented and God relented. Now, Micah's book, or prophetical writing, is really a compilation of three different talks that Micah delivered. They break down in chapter 1, chapter 3, and chapter 6. Each one of them begins with, listen, O Israel. So these are three separate talks that have been compiled in what we call the book of Micah. Now, the first one is most likely the oldest of the three, that it's the one that he delivered first because in that oracle, in that talk, chapter one through chapter two, Micah is, is going to talk about Assyria's destruction of the northern kingdom. So most likely it is, is the older one. And it seems like that first oracle or that first talk was delivered right on the heels of the destruction of Samaria and right on the heel of the destruction of the northern kingdom. One of Micah's kind of motifs through his book is that of setting up a, a courthouse or a court, a court session, a lawsuit and, and so we'll see that when we get to the, to the meat of what I want to share with you this morning. We'll see that but that kind of lawsuit courtroom metaphor motif runs throughout the book. Uh, of Micah. Now, Micah can be a bit confusing. If you read it and just read it and you didn't do any study to, to try to get some of the stuff that I'm sharing with you right now, it might have been a little bit confusing because in each of the three talks, they begin like this, judgment and then promise of restoration. Judgment, promise of restoration. Judgment, promise of restoration. All right, so knowing that kind of will help you if you're reading through the book, chapters one and two, three, four and five, six and seven. That's how it breaks down. Three, three talks, each one beginning with judgment, each one ending with God's promise of restoration in the future. All right, and uh, and so we'll see some of that, but we're going to save the restoration to next Sunday, because the restoration is promising Jesus. And since we're going to be looking at Jesus coming next Sunday, we're going to save that till next week. But today, what I'd like to do is I'd like to focus in the message of Micah. I'd like to focus on what is his indictment against them? Why is God sending Micah to to Judah? What is the talk that he, what is the sin that he's pointing out? So that's what we're going to do this morning. I'm going to share with you the thing that has greatly offended God. Now, I want to share with you, there's really two things in the, in the story of Micah, but really the, the first one isn't about Judah. And it begins this way, or God's indictment in the letter of Micah is that they worship pagan gods. They worship pagan gods. Now, God has established Israel and, and or, or Jacob, and then Isaac, and, and then, excuse me, Abraham, Isaac, then Jacob, renaming him Israel. And God has, has established his descendants to be this nation that God said, this is my nation. I am choosing you. Actually, he created them by choosing Abraham and then growing them up. And he said, you're going to be a special nation in all the world. You see, because I'm going to protect you and I'm going to provide for you and I'm going to love you. And so what's going to happen is all the world's going to see how great it is between between us. And they're going to be drawn to me through you. The only thing I ask of you is that you love me back and you follow me in faith and do the things that I'm asking you to do. And, And of course, the vast majority of Israel never did the vast majority of all the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob did not love God like that, did not follow God like that. And so all throughout the scriptures, all throughout the scriptures, God calls the the small group of Jewish people who really did love God by faith and follow God, follow his covenant. He called them the remnant. So here's just something for you to note as you're reading your Bibles, when you're reading through the Old Testament, and you see God talk about the remnant, he's talking about the Jewish people, born of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who really did love him, and really did follow him, and really did, they, they served him, and they lived by the first covenant, okay? But, but most, the vast majority did not, and so, and so God is continually having to admonish them, So in chapter 1, verse 6, Micah says this, So the Lord will leave Samaria in ruins, merely an empty field where vineyards are planted. He will scatter its stones and destroy its foundations. Samaria's idols will be smashed and the wages of temple prostitutes will be destroyed by fire. Now, if you were here and you're tracking with me this morning, you'll remember the message of Hosea to the northern tribes of Israel. Remember his message? It was this, you have committed spiritual prostitution and spiritual adultery, you have abandoned God, you don't love God, you follow the Baals, and God's going to judge you for that. Now, he wasn't the only, that wasn't the only sin of the northern tribes, but that was the sin that Hosea pointed out. And that's the sin that Micah is mentioning here. One of, of spiritual prostitution. But notice this. It's really directed at the northern kingdom. And so one of the things that I did is I, I went back through the book of, of Micah. And I read it twice. Asking myself this question. Is Micah directing this at Judah as well? And the answer is no. I mean you do not find Micah directing Spiritual prostitution as God's indictment against Judah, but it's in his it's in his letter against the northern kingdom. Everybody following me? Now that doesn't mean that doesn't mean that that's that that's not a sin in Judah. And the reason I say that because, again, if you've been here and you're tracking with me, do you remember the the Amos who was down in the south and went north? Do you remember what his message was against the northern tribe? It wasn't about spiritual prostitution. It wasn't about leaving God for the Baals. It was about social justice and the lack thereof. And the fact that the northern kingdom had abandoned the poor, didn't care about them, were abusing them and using them. That was the message of Amos. The message of Hosea was spiritual prostitution. The same nation, two separate messages from two different prophets. So I'm not trying to say that Judah wasn't guilty of that. I'm just simply saying that's not the message of of Micah. That's not why he's been sent to, uh, to Judah. So what is the message of Micah to Judah. Here it is, okay? His primary, his primary message directed at them is this. You are an unjust people. You are a people who do not care about justice at all. And that is God's indictment in the whole, in the whole book against Judah. Look at Micah chapter 3, verses 8 through 9. Again, this is the second oracle or the second message that Micah delivered at some point. But in chapter 3, verse 8 and 9, here's what Micah says. But the Lord has filled me with power and his spirit. I have been given the courage to speak about justice and to tell you people of Israel that you have sinned. So listen to my message, you rulers of Israel. You hate justice and twist the truth. Now, the Hebrew word for justice is mishpat, and it occurs more than 200 times in your Old Testament, okay? And its basic meaning is this that you have to treat people equitably. The basic meaning of justice in the Old Testament is you need to treat people fairly. You need to treat them the same. It means that acquitting or punishing a person needs to be done on the merits of the case, not regarding their race or their social status. Everyone should be treated the same. And when it came to, when it came to legal justice, everyone should be given the same penalty. Now, you need to understand that this was extraordinary. For us, probably everybody in this room would say, yes, that's how I define justice. Everybody should be treated equally. Well, you know where you got that? You got that from here. You got that from our God, everybody. But that's not how it worked prior to our God telling us how it ought to be. In fact, if you were not part of my clan, if you were not part of my people, I owed you nothing. I didn't have to treat you with any kind of fairness at all. In fact, I, I was within my right to destroy you, kill you, murder you if I wanted. And so there was, there was all kinds of clan warfare and clan fighting But God comes along and says, no, justice, justice has to do with treating everyone equitably and fairly. And that became the order of the law in Jewish Jewish government, okay? But now here's one thing I want you to hear. And some of you you're probably not going to agree so much with this, but I'm telling you, it's what the Bible teaches. And, And that is that there is another side to mishpat. And mishpat isn't just that we treat one another equitably, mishpat is that we actually care for people who have needs. And so in Deuteronomy 18, when the priests are told to be supported by the people, they are, they are just, it is described as the priest mishpat, as the priest justice. So the idea here is that we are to Give people their due, help them. It's their right. Mishpat then carried the idea of protection and punishment—not just punishment, but protection and care for those who really needed it. And so that's why, when we go through the Old Testament, you know, in in just about every spot of the Old Testament, it's going to come up that mishpat is described as—listen—it's described as caring for and taking up the cause of people who have no power and who just have great need. And those people are always, prior to the, the modern era, those people were always the widows, the orphans, the immigrant, and the poor. Tim Keller said, and I, and I couldn't find this, he said, but they're often called the quartet of the vulnerable. I, I really, well, That really struck me. In in a pre-modern agricultural society, prior to where we are today, and back in Old Testament times, that group of four had absolutely no power, no no position. They were subsistently living, meaning that, you know, they were barely scrounging food enough to live. And so any kind of social upheaval or famine, natural disaster or anything would cause so many of those people to die because they had no recourse. Now, if we were to try to, I think, expand that to a modern equivalency, I would think we'd have to add to that group of the vulnerable would be the refugee, the the migrant worker, the homeless person, the single parent, even the elderly without without somebody to care for them. I would even include, it would be the folks who who struggle with, with mental illness. As so many of the homeless we know really are folks who struggle with mental illness mishpat or justice of a society according to the Bible, okay? Our relationship with God, listen to me carefully, our relationship with God is is measured or viewed in light of that. Now, if you can just think back 15, 20 minutes ago when I read Isaiah 58, In Isaiah 58, the people, the Israelites, this is Isaiah, same time, same message. The people are saying, we fast, we observe the Sabbath. We do all those things, but God, you're not listening to us. And God says, you think you think the, 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 the fast that I want is just that you do religious observances on Sabbath or on the Sabbath or that you fast food? You think that's what I want? And then at the other, on the other hand, you are just acting unjustly towards your workers and the poor and, and everyone else who has no need, who has tremendous need, people who are under the yoke of, of their position? You, you, you think what I want is these little superficial ritual things? No, really what I want is for you to care for people. I want you to care about social justice, treating everyone equitably and caring for the people who cannot care for themselves. That's what I want of you. Do that and then your light will shine. That's what I want. That's the message of Isaiah, not the message of Micah. That's the message of Isaiah. So Micah says to them in chapter 2, verse 1, I'm going to read you several verses. He says, Woe to those who dream up wickedness and prepare evil plans on their beds. At morning light, they accomplish it because the power is in their hands. Now notice that. They can accomplish these wicked plans because the power is in their hands. They covet fields and seize them. They also take houses. They deprive a man of his home, a person of his inheritance. Verse 9, same chapter, you force the women of my people out of their comfortable homes and you take my blessing from their children forever. Here's the picture that Micah is painting. People in power, people who have money, people who are in positions of authority, they are using those things to wrongly force women. Remember, women have no power in culture and society and they're forcing women out, taking their homes, taking the blessing of their children forever. Chapter 6, verse 9, so listen to my message for the city of Jerusalem. You store up stolen goods and you use dishonest scales, but I, the Lord, will punish you for cheating with weights and with measures. You rich people are violent and everyone tells lies. Now again, I I don't want you to hear this to just be a message for the rich, but I, I do want you to hear this. Poor people have no power. Here's what that means. You know why God is so against bribery in your Bibles? You know why he he condemns bribery from beginning to end? Because who can do the bribing? The rich can do the bribing. Can a poor person bribe you? They have no power. They have no money. They have nothing to bribe any official. And that's why God says social justice is that we treat everyone equitably. In other words, that we don't have judges and police officers and, and, and congressmen and mayors who are using their power to somehow get rich themselves and taking advantage of the folks who, who do not have power. But again, I want you to understand it's not just... All of us would probably agree with equitability, all right? That's not, the problem is, I'm telling you that justice has to do with not just that we say everybody is treated equitably, justice is that we help lift up people who don't have power, who don't have the ability to lift themselves up. Our social justice is that we, social justice in the Bible is that we help lift up our brothers and our sisters and people around us. He especially levels these accusations against the leaders. Chapter 3, verse 1 of Micah. And then I said, now listen, leaders of Jacob, you rulers of the house of Israel. Aren't you supposed to know what is just? You hate good and love evil. You tear off people's skins and strip their flesh from their bones. You eat the flesh of my people after you strip their skins and, uh, from them and break their bones. You chop them up like flesh for the cooking pot, like meat in a cauldron. Now, Micah is not accusing them of cannibalism. He's using that metaphorically. He's saying, look, it's like you're cooking, my, you're eating my people, you're destroying my people. In chapter, nine, chapter three, verse nine, drop down a couple of verses. So listen to my messages, you rulers of Israel. You hate justice and twist the truth. You make cruelty and murder a way of life in, in Jerusalem. You leaders accept bribes for dishonest decisions. In chapter 7, verse 3, people cooperate to commit crimes. Judges and leaders demand bribes and rulers cheat in court. The most honest of them is worse than a thorn patch. The most honest of them is worse than a thorn patch, he says. But then there's something else about, about justice that I think we need to understand. Justice in our Bible is, is so linked with right with the word righteousness, okay, And it's really funny because the same word uh, for for righteousness in the Septuagint translates into justice in the Old Testament, and we translate it into righteousness in the New Testament. You understand what I'm saying? The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. The same word righteousness is translating the word justice in the Old Testament. But it's always translated. It's always, in English, we'll put it as justice, or they would always call it justice. Justice there and righteousness in the New Testament. And here, here's kind of the here's the relationship between those two things, okay? Righteousness is so often associated with my own rightness, my own personal righteousness before God. Justice has to do with the community. Justice is how, how we do righteousness together as a group. When we talk about righteousness, so often we're looking at ourselves. But here's the connection: right living leads to the pursuit of justice. And the pursuit of justice demands righteous living. Both of those are a reflection of the character of God, and they both depend on each other. And so, if there's no social justice, if we're not living justly in society, it shows itself in our personal righteousness. So in chapter 7, verse 2, Micah says this, no one is loyal to, to, no one is loyal to God, no one does right, In verse 6 of the same chapter, he says, "...sons refuse to respect their own fathers, daughters rebel against their own mothers, and daughter-in-laws despise their mother-in-laws. Your family is now your enemy." Even spiritual leadership, the prophets, the preachers of the day, Micah 3.5, you lying prophets promise security for everyone, anyone who gives you food, but disasters for anyone who refuses to feed you. So if the prophet comes up to you and says, can I have some money, then he'll prophesy nicely about you. But if you won't give him anything, he's going he's to condemn you. In verse 11, same chapter 3, you priests and prophets teach and preach, but only for money. And then you say, the Lord is on our side, no harm will come to us. The people of Judah are are they're they're Here's here's what, they don't accept Micah's message. In verse six, they say, enough of your preaching. That's what you tell me. We won't be disgraced, so stop preaching. That's the word of the Jews to the, of the Judaites of of Israel to Micah. Stop preaching. We don't, we've heard enough. We won't be disgraced by your preaching. Micah retorts to them in verse 11. He says, the only prophet you want is a liar who will drink and get, who will say to you, drink and get drunk. The only person you want is somebody who is going to say what you want him to say about yourself. That's the kind of preacher you want, who calms your, con, calms your convictions but doesn't confront your sinfulness. You know, I thought about this as I, as I read that. You remember, that's what Paul said years, centuries later. He said, there's coming a time, and, and it's, just, it's always been this time. It's always been this time. People want preachers who tickle their ears. People want preachers who are just going to say what... Um, what you want them to say. And I've had several people over the years say, you know, Jimmy, I've stopped coming to church because, and I just, I don't want to feel beat up. And I'm telling you something, I've said this before, I'll say it again, I don't want you to feel beat up. Man, I want you to leave here encouraged, not, not beat down by the word of God. I want you to feel loved by God when you leave here. I want you to feel good about who you are in Christ. I mean, listen, God so loved you, he sent Jesus to die for you. I don't want you to leave here being all beat up. But at the same time, you know, we we, we have to be true to what God says. And such is the case in this message that Micah is delivering to the people. And so we have to say what God says. So this morning, let's, you know, there's in chapter six, the first part of chapter six, Micah really confronts this sin. And and this is where I want us to to focus in for just a few more minutes before we end. In Micah chapter six, beginning with verse one, turn there in your Bibles if you have it. And, uh, and, and Micah says, let's, let's have a trial, you and creation, you guys and God before creation. And so he starts off, and he says, my people, what have I done to you, and how have I wearied you? Answer me, indeed, I brought you from the land of Egypt and ransomed you from the house of slavery. I sent before you Moses and Aaron and, and, and Miriam. My people, remember now what Balak Balak, king of Moab, counseled and what Balaam, son of Peor, answered, and from Shittim to Gilgal, so that you might know the righteous acts of the Lord. So basically, God kind of said, he says, what have I done to you guys except for deliver you from Egypt? What have I done for you except to set you up as a, a nation? And, and I, think verses, I think verse five, there is really, I think that's Micah's verse. He says, remember Balak and, and Balaam? If you know the story, Balak was the king who wanted Balaam to prophesy against them. And Balaam kept saying, I, I'm only going to say what God says. I'm only going to say what God says. I'm only going to say what God says. Probably shouldn't have gone to start with, but he did stay true to that. I'm only going to say what God says. I think that's what Micah's saying. I'm only going to tell you what God says. So Micah continues, and then it's like he's speaking rhetorically for Israel, and he says, well, what does God want from us? You know, what does God want from us? Does he want us to sacrifice? And then he kind of builds. Does he want us to sacrifice a thousand rams? Does he want us to sacrifice 10,000 rivers of oil? Does he want us to sacrifice our sons for our sin? And then Micah gives what I think is a guiding word to them, but I think it's the word for us this morning. And so if you've been tuning me out, try to listen to me now. In verse 8, God says, God has told you, oh man, God has told you, oh man, what is good and what God requires of you. Micah says, it's not hard, everybody. It's not hard, and it's not hidden. It's been very, very clear. God has shown you from the beginning what he desires of you, and it's not animal sacrifices or oil sacrifices or heaven forbid that you would sacrifice your sons. Now, don't hear me saying, don't hear God saying that the sacrificial system is not important. It was. It was, an, it was an illustration, a demonstration of our faith in God, but it was the flower, not the root. It was the thing we did in response. It wasn't the cause. So Micah now enumerates three things that God has made clear to his people when it comes to, to justice. Here they are. Number one, he says, God has, shown you, God has shown you what to do. It's really, really clear. Here it is. Do justice. Do justice. And I think it's pretty clear what I've, what I've said justice is. Justice is treating everyone fairly. Uh, in society, and in in its caring for the marginalized. But I want to share a story with you that Tim Keller shared from his early young life, and it really made an impact on me. So this is Tim Keller, and this is what Tim says. When I was a professor at a theological seminary in the mid-'80s, one of my students was a young man named Mark Gornick. One day we were standing at the copier, and he told me that he was about to move to Sandtown, one of the poorest and most dangerous neighborhoods in Baltimore. I remember being quite surprised, and when I asked him why, he said simply, to do justice. It had been decades since any white people had moved to Sandtown. For the first couple of years there, it was touch and go. Mark told a reporter, the police thought I was the drug dealer, the drug dealers thought I was the police, so for a while there, I didn't know who was going to shoot me first. Yet over the years, Mark, along with the leaders of Sandtown community, established a church, and a comprehensive comprehensive set of ministries that have slowly transformed that neighborhood. Here's God's point. Here's what I want of you. Do justice. Don't just mouth off justice. Don't just say, yeah, justice is a great idea. God is saying, get involved. You do justice. You be somebody who is just. What is that? That is somebody who says, I am, going to sh- I am going to raise my voice. I'm going to give my money. I'm going to donate my time to a couple of things. One is to make sure that our society is one that treats people equitably and fairly. And I'm going to be somebody who's going to be involved in trying to care for the marginalized. I'm going to be somebody who tries to raise up people who, who have been put down and who need a hand up. I know many of you think you got to where you are by yourself. And please don't misunderstand me. You, you got where you are because you have applied diligence and things of that nature. But what made you to be born to the family you were born? What made you to be born into a family where your parents wanted you to go to college and could pay for you to go to college? What, what made you have parents that read to you when you were a child? So yeah, you got there somewhat on your own, but you also had immense blessing in where God, and I don't know how it works, Where you got to be who you are and where you are. My, my point is, my point is not to condemn us for who we are and where we are. My point is that justice raises up people who maybe didn't have some of the things that you and I had to start with. I think that Amos would agree with Micah. You remember what Amos said in chapter 5, verse 24? But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Remember, justice has a personal component and a community component. See, and the personal component is me being straight, myself, being being a, a holy man who lives God's will out for my life, and so I personally fight for justice and fairness, and I seek to increase myself, myself, the, the, the powerless and the marginalized. I seek to increase them and raise them up. Now, some of you are saying this. You're saying, Jimmy, life's not fair. Don't you know that? And absolutely, I know that. I, I know it's not fair, but maybe that's why God calls us to be people of justice. Are you listening to me? Maybe, maybe life's not fair, but that's why God calls us to be people of justice, okay? And to seek societal justice as well as personal justice, because that's what he wants. Remember how Jesus taught us to pray? How did Jesus teach you to pray? Our Father, who art in heaven, holy be your name. What's next? Your will be done on earth, even as it is in heaven. You know, too many of us, myself included, we're, we're all about tomorrow when God says, may your will be done on earth, even as it is in heaven. And you know what? He's left us of, as agents of justice to bring about his will on earth, to, tr- to, to try to bring about the kind of world that God desires. Yes, I know that we need Jesus. He's going to be the final Prince of Peace who's going to come and, and, and do it. But you know, in the meantime, we've got a mission, And the mission is that we need to care for justice because God cares for justice. And and can I say, I am not speaking to you as white American upper class people. You know, the last time I spoke on this, people confused me and they said, I'm so tired of hearing about white privilege. This isn't about white privilege. This is about you being a follower of Christ, seeking to lift up people who are hurting and can't lift themselves up. That's what this is about. And this is why God says to Israel, his chosen nation, I have this against you. You don't care about justice. And so if there's something that you and I need to care about, it's justice. We need to care about justice. Not just to care about it, but we need to do it. here's the second thing, love mercy. Love mercy, also translated love kindness maybe in your Bible. There is so much in the Bible about mercy. It's the fruit of the Spirit of God in our life. Mercy, mercy should be coming out of our pores. Mercy is, is more than just feeling sympathy. Mercy is actually caring. It's actually doing something to engage and alleviate the suffering and loneliness and grief of people. And people who are suffering physically, emotionally, financially, spiritual crises, we, we need to be merciful people who seek to meet their needs with generosity and self-sacrifice. Mercy is a champion of the lowly, the poor, the exploited, the forgotten. Here's a good example. Matthew chapter 20, verse 29 through 34. Jesus and his disciples are on the road to Jericho. And you remember the two blind guys sitting on the side of the road And they they hear that Jesus is out there, and they start yelling. They're blind. They can't see. Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. And the crowd rebuked them, told them to shut up. And they shouted all the louder, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. And Jesus stopped them and called them. And and he says, what do you want me to do for you? And And they said, Lord, we want to see And Jesus had compassion on them, and he touched their eyes, and immediately they received their sight and followed him. Can I tell you, those men didn't want a feeling of mercy from Jesus. They wanted Jesus to have mercy on them and to act. I'm telling you, mercy is about acting. Not acting as in pretending, but acting as in doing. This week I read uh, an essay by C.S. Lewis, was on subjectivism, and, uh, and just... In a nutshell, just so you'll understand the context, C.S. Lewis is arguing that there is natural law. He's arguing that it doesn't matter what culture you're from; people know right from wrong. It's 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 in us. It's in. In fact, C.S. Lewis goes on to say that it's you know God is you know it's not just that goodness is good because God declares it to be good, and it's not that God is good because you know here's what goodness is. You know, God is like. Anyway, I'm not going to go there. I'm kind of getting off tan. Anyway, this is such a great article, but you have to read it like 10 times to understand it. But anyway, um, but he's trying to make this point that natural law, that natural goodness exists and the people who try to say that every society just comes up with what's good for themselves, he says, that's hogwash. Listen to what he says. He says, and I quote, and what of the second modern objection that the ethical standards of different cultures differ so widely that there is no common tradition at all. So he says some people are saying that, that every culture is going to be different. This is what he continues. The answer is, that is a lie. A good, solid, resounding lie. If a man will go into a library and spend a few days with the Encyclopedia of Religion and Ethics, he will soon discover the massive unanimity of the practical reason in man. From the Babylonian hymn to Samos, from the laws of Manu, I have no idea what these things are. Obviously, they're peoples from the past. The Book of the Dead, the Analects, the Stoics, the the, the Platonists, from the Australian Aborigines and the Redskins. He will collect the same triumphant, monotonous denunciation of oppression and murder and treachery and falsehood and the same injunctions of kindness to the aged and the young and the weak of almsgiving and impartiality and honesty. Here's what he said in case you didn't follow that. He says, you go and check out all the ethical writings of all the people groups, and they all say the same thing. Why? Because there's natural law. You know, God's goodness, what is good is in us. And he says, you find it there. But then he continues, and this is the part I want you to hear. He continues and he says, he may be a little surprised. That is the guy that goes to the library to look up these things on ethics, right? He may be a little surprised, I certainly was, to find that precepts of mercy are more frequent than precepts of justice. But he will no longer doubt that there is such a thing as the law of nature. Here's what he's going to find out, that every culture seems to care about mercy even more than it does justice. God says, Here's, I've shown you, oh man, what I desire of you. It's not hard. It's not hidden. Do justice. Love Mercy. And the last thing he says is, walk humbly with your God. And that's a description of a man's heart. God's people depend on him rather than on their own abilities. That's what walking humbly before God is. We depend on the Lord. When uh, when I read something like that, I can't help but think of Peter. It's, it's, It's a verse that's been ingrained in my heart since I was a young Christian God stiff arms the proud. And that's, that's like a football term, right? You know, when the guy's trying to tackle you and you put your arm out stiffly like this to keep him from getting to you, God stiff arms the proud, but he embraces the humble. He gives them grace. I mean, he lets them come in where he's going to stiff arm the proud. To walk humbly with God is to walk in genuineness. It's to be real. It's not, it's not thinking of myself better than I am. It's being honest with myself about myself. But it's not just being honest about myself with myself. It's about being honest with you guys about me. It's about being honest before God with who I am. You know, we, we have to... Walking humbly with God means I walk humbly with you. I pay attention to my sins. I know my sins. I'm more concerned with my failures than I am your failures. You see, because that's what humility does. It, it's... It doesn't hide behind dignity. You know, pride, you know where your pride wants to hide? It wants to hide behind your dignity. In other words, Ananias and Sapphira, you know, if you were here this morning for Sunday school, I mean, they lied because they wanted to look better than they were. They were hiding behind this this false dignity. Their pride was. They were sinning. They were lying. You know what, folks? We've got to somehow, if we're going to, here's what God wants of you. Do justice. Do justice. Love mercy and walk humbly with God. Be honest with God. Be honest with each other. Be, be truthful. Be real. To walk humbly means to stop making excuses. Stop blaming others and confessing my sins and my failures. Can I say this to you? And this isn't this is an original. I don't remember who I read it from. But as long as you call it weakness instead of willfulness, you forfeit the grace of God in your life. As long as you call it an accident and not an abomination, you forfeit God's help. As long as you call it an indiscretion rather than iniquity, you are just inviting God to stiff arm you and not to receive grace from him to help you in your failures. To walk humbly with our God means that we're just honest about our warts, everything about us. And I don't necessarily mean that you need to come up here and confess all your failures, but I am saying you quit hiding your failures from one another. And in the confines and in the the loving groups that you're a part of, you're honest about where you're failing. You're honest about your weakness. You humble yourself before God and before one another. And that's what God desires of us. We walk humbly with God. We recognize that no amount of personal sacrifice, no amount of religious ritual can replace a heart that's committed to justice and to love mercy. Israel's rhetorical questions had a three-part progression. I'm done, by the way. They had a three-part progression. The response of a godly heart is outward, do justice. Inward is to love mercy. And upward, it's to walk humbly with God. I want to end end, um, talking about Jesus, if I could. Okay? Even though I'm going to talk about Jesus for Mike, I just, I just want to talk about Jesus when it relates to this, to this justice thing, okay? And here's how I want, I want to talk about Jesus in two ways. Two ways. First, I want to tell you that Jesus did justice, he loved mercy, and he walked humbly with his Father. He did justice in this way. The, the, the one who could not raise himself up by his own bootstraps, the one who couldn't somehow earn his way to God, Jesus did justice by humbly coming for me. By engaging the guy who is unable to lift himself up, Jesus comes for me. Jesus does justice. You want to be like him? Do justice. Jesus loved mercy. Why did he do it? Why did he humble himself? Why did he lower himself? Why did he, why did he do justice? Because he's motivated by his mercy. He's motivated by his love for me. And humbling himself to do justice and to show mercy, he was willing to let go of the glory of heaven. And again, in in my estimation, and this is just Jimmy, because I know some Christians would disagree with me, and they would say that the kenosis, by the way, that's the word for lowering himself. The kenosis of Jesus is that he lowered himself in the sense that he let go of the glory of heaven. I want to tell you, I believe the kenosis of Jesus was even greater than that. And I believe that by taking on our, human, our humanity, our nature, that there was a limitation, a self-imposed limitation, but a limitation nonetheless, that God would not operate and Jesus would not operate, you know, as God. And so he did what he did through the power of the Holy Spirit, humbling himself, lowering himself, I mean, you know, he treat, being treated with injustice himself, someone who was marginalized, who was absolutely poor. He came into this world being born in a manger because his mom and dad were in a city and there weren't even any place. They couldn't, they couldn't rent a nice place. So Jesus is born and laid in a feeding trough. And then when he dies, he has only one piece of clothing left. That's it. That's all he has. So he was willing to lower himself to do justice because of his mercy. Another thing I want to say about Jesus is this. You know, I'm I'm not trying to guilt any of you, any of you, into doing justice, to caring about the poor and the marginalized, because you know what? It'll never, ever work. Social scientists tell us that, you know, we... uh, And and I wish I'd had some of these facts and figures. I don't, but you know... um, Self-imposed desire to care for the poor and, and, and to lift the marginalized, etc., it, it's only going to last a little while. You know, you know what will change our hearts? You know what will cause us to be men and women who do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with God? That's just seeing the beauty of our Savior. That's the only thing that will do it. The only thing that will change you forever and ever and ever, and not saying that we won't have dips, But the only thing that's going to change you and make you care about what God cares about is if you can see Jesus in all his beauty. If you can see the Jesus that I just shared with you who did justice, who loved mercy, and who walked humbly with the Father. If you can see the beauty of Jesus, then then you can see the beauty of doing justice, loving mercy, and you will, and walking humbly with your God. Let's bow our heads. Father, I'm I'm sitting here and my notes just don't seem to be what I'm supposed to do. So Lord, just in the quietness of this moment, Holy Spirit, would you seek us out? Would you speak to us? Lord, what's our response to the message of Micah for them, but by extension for us? Lord, would you take this moment and just speak to our hearts? Father, I know this message is a lot on principle, maybe short on practice, how, how, to, how do we live out justice? You know. But I want to pray that you would speak to all of our hearts. Lord, show us how to, to do justice in our, in our community, not as Americans, but as followers of Jesus, as men and women who owe our allegiance, our lives, our everything to you. And so, Lord Jesus, would you show us how we might Live out justice in our society, in our culture. Lord help us to be doers of justice, not just not just talkers of justice. Hear our prayer, hear our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.